1: Everybody. Nightlight will be doing a special show tonight, and tonight's host is going to be Mark Eddy. I'm going to take second chair and run the switchboard for him. We're going to tonight be joined by author and historian Rick Osman, who will be our guest for both hours, and documentary filmmaker Lee Pennington, who will be with the three of us for the first hour as we discuss their upcoming appearances at the Ancient Artifact Preservation Society Conference. Lee will be focusing on Kentucky's Spratt site and its mysterious stone walls and cairns. And with these two, we'll also hear about King Arthur being in America and the Brandenburg Stone, which Lee was featured analyzing on America on Earth. So sit back, get your notebooks, your paper out, your pencils out, and learn from researchers that you, what you weren't taught in high school. So from here on in, Mark, it's your show. Welcome to the show, and it's all yours.
2: uh, No pressure there. Thanks. uh, (laughs) uh, uh, How how are you doing tonight?
1: Doing well, doing very well. I'm looking forward to tonight. Both of these guys sound fascinating.
2: Oh, yeah, and I I do want to remind everyone the Mothman uh, Festival is this weekend. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. C- come on down and have Halloween in September. Let's see what. You know, I also want to just uh, make a quick comment about, you know, I think you and I are developing something unique. I think mean, uh, it stems from our education backgrounds and well, we have. I think the listeners are really going to enjoy what we have in the works.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have, mm-hmm. you have such a wealth of, of people that, that you have contacts with that can come on and, and share their information with the general public, and lots of times they don't have a, a, a platform to talk from. So it's, yeah. it's wonderful that you are pulling people together and providing them that platform.
2: No, it's it, it's becoming more of an educational forum than a shock type show. So I, I, I think the listeners are going to enjoy the next um, several several guests we have lined up and on your show and and I think, uh, you know, barring my house uh, being flooded and. Uh, possibly <laughs> washed away next Tuesday. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to be doing a uh, you know who show on who was the real author of the Shakespeare plays and uh, promoting the Shakespeare Fellowship uh, conference in Oakland in, in like about a month. So uh, stay tuned for that one. So um, you might as well just uh, get get to Lee and Rick now. H- how are you? Okay. Uh, two two doing. Oh, they're
1: not on yet. Oh, they aren't. Oh, now okay. they're
2: on. Oh, okay. They're, oh,
1: they're,
2: they're
1: now their mics are open. Yep.
2: Okay, they're, uh Lee and Rick, how how are you tonight?
1: I'm doing great. I can't speak late.
2: for
3: Lee, but I'm well. Okay. We're we're both
2: on that we're on our way to that
3: octogenarian thing. But at least a lot closer than I am.
4: Yeah, I'm on the precipice. <laughs> okay. One Probably. leg hanging over.
2: <laughs> well, uh, you you're not showing your age because you're out and about a, a lot. So that's 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 a good sign and well, uh, he's,
3: he's he's trying to keep so busy the devil can't catch you.
2: Yeah, well, he
4: he doesn't want me anyway. He, he's like the old story of the guy when he finally went to hell, they locked the doors and got a coal bucket full of coals and handed it out to the guy and said, go make your own hell.
2: Thank <laughs> <laughs> uh, You two are going to be uh keynote speakers at the Ancient Artifact Preservation Society Conference in Harris, Michigan on October fifth, sixth and seventh. Um, and we uh
0: let's
2: see where where they being held? Um at the Island Resort Convention Center. So you, you oh, go that in great, there that
4: and... great Native American casino there. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's an incredible facility uh, right on Native ground there. And uh, some of our speakers are going to be uh, Native Americans there, and that's going to be uh, very interesting, too.
2: Yeah, and, and uh, I think work's R- going to be focusing on some of that for the uh second hour and yeah it, it's a nice balance of what you know, you know the the native people have to say about you know the copper mining or you know other topics that they're going to discuss as well as what you know white boys uh, have discovered about their their research into another uh, people's culture. So it's a nice balance of different perspectives.
4: Yeah, well, one of the things we haven't been doing over the years is we haven't been listening to the Native American perspective. And Mm -hmm. and, uh, that's uh, their legends, uh, because they came from an oral tradition, is their... Is there history, and over the years, we pretended that legends aren't worth listening at, and that's we're finding out recently that that those legends are as solid history as our uh, many of our history books, in fact, sometimes even uh, better history than what we put in the books
3: hmm. yes, more accurate and more um let's see, comprehensive that would be the best word
4: yeah and that's, that's but, a good point rick that uh, uh i i have known a, a great many native american uh, storytellers and and they are literally required to get every breath right before by the elders before they're permitted to go out and tell the stories and 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 so there's a, an incredible amount of accuracy that they carry with them in that oral tradition.
1: Yeah, I, m- I might add yes. that the uh, man who did my introduction, his name is Ken Quiethawk, and he is a Native storyteller.
4: Right. They wait, have some wait, good so ones. They're more,
1: po- they're, they're more politically correct than some of our books, for sure.
4: Oh, goodness, they're...
2: A more correct period.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. You know, and, you know, Barbara, uh, one of your upcoming guests, you know, Jason Gerald, you know, does include so- some of the, the Native American information in his book. And I, I think when we you know, were kind of looking at uh, Greg Little being a guest in. October, uh, he he will mm-hmm. be touching on uh, similar information. So, you know, this is a new topic that's being rediscovered.
4: Some of the great work Definitely. being done uh, uh, right now in connection with many of the Native American sites is is Dr. Jim Schertz. He will be at the. Mm-hmm. he'll be at the conference and we'll be speaking and uh, Jim has done a great deal of uh, survey work uh especially for the ho chunks and Jim was asked along with uh, uh with Richie Brown to by the late uh, Ralph Redcloud to to go to the Medicine Wheel out west and and get the measurements on it, and and get the exact directions on it, because that medicine wheel was pointing to incredibly important sites uh, across North America, and Ralph Red Cloud knew of many of these sites through the stories, but he had no idea where they were located in reality, and the work that uh, Jim Schertz and, and Richie Brown did uh, with the Medicine Wheel site and their follow-up, they were able to find many of those sites that had been lost physically but were still in the Native American stories, and that's uh, those, those stories were accurate, and... Uh, the surveys that uh, Jim did turned out to produce incredible results uh, all over North America. Important results. Okay. And, 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 he could,
3: and he keeps working on it.
4: Well, it's a never-ending job, and it's, uh, it 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 it's like a little boy said to me once. I took a little a bunch of little high schoolers. Uh, who were back in the country and took him into the city one time and gave them some some steak to eat, and it was the first time they had ever had steak, and one little boy got a bite and started chewing and chewing and chewing, and finally he looked up at me and said, the more you chew, the bigger it gets. <laughs> and so but that's kind of the way Jim's work is, I guess kind of the way, way all of our work is. We just get... Get going on it, and then suddenly uh, it you know every time we come up with an answer we've got twelve more questions so that and that's the way it should be that's why life's exciting yeah and and,
3: and challenging
2: every day <laughs> and and since- so, 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 since we just gave you know, a little background on um, some of the guest speakers' uh, information that they'll be discussing on uh, folklore. Um, you know, Lee, you'll, you'll also be discussing the Sprat site. Which it's you know that's an actual uh, place. So might as well talk a little bit about your how how you came to find out about it your involvement what are your you know, you know what are your conclusions of what this place is maybe, uh, maybe we should start with a little uh description of this site where is it located okay
4: the site is located uh in Menifee County Kentucky which is uh which is uh, east of Lexington, Kentucky, and directly east of uh, well, a little southeast of Louisville. Uh, Menifee County is a is a county that uh, that there's a, a major major river coming off the Ohio River, uh, the Licking River, and going up into that area, so that it it that area had access. To the early roadways, and that's one of the things about uh, Kentucky that stands out. That uh, uh, Kentucky is central to the whole everything east of the Rockies because of the waterways. Uh, many people don't know, but uh, the the uh, waterways form lengthwise. Kentucky has the uh, the longest shoreline of waterways of any place, any other state in the United States except uh, Alaska. So the the rivers go all over the place in Kentucky, and Menifee County is one of those places. I first heard about this site. uh, I was teaching a uh, creative writing workshop up at uh, Carter Caves, which I did for ten summers in a row, and. one day after class, this elderly man walked in and he said to me, "He said I've got uh, Aztec structures on my property." And, well, I got excited just thinking about the possibility of that in Kentucky, and so I said to him, "Well, I'd certainly like to come up and see those sometime." And and so he gave me his his uh, uh, contact uh, uh, stuff, his phone number and his uh, his address and. And, of course, I got busy and forgot about it. And, and then suddenly one of our uh, great writers in, in Ken, Kentucky, Byron Crawford, did an article on these stoneworks in the Courier-Journal. And and I saw it, and I said to my late wife, Joy, my goodness, that's that man that came into my class and said he had Aztec things on his property. So I got on the telephone immediately and called him and said... Uh, that I would like to come up and look at him, and he said, "When would you like to come?" I said, "As soon as possible." He said, "How about today?" I said, "We're on our way." And so uh, we grabbed the camera and jumped in the car and uh, and drove up that same day, and that was my the first time I uh, witnessed those, and I was literally blown away the very first time I saw them as anyone I ever took up there later. Uh, had the same reaction that I did. Uh, at the back of the Spratt property, which is along an uh, area called Clifton Creek, uh, there, is a, there is a canyon, uh, a high-wall canyon, horseshoe kind of canyon, and in that canyon area, down in the area, is a, uh, is a series of stoneworks that are just just amazing uh I know uh, barbara's worked with a lot of a uh, lot of stones in her marvelous documentary and and but I was just stunned when I saw these uh basically in that one area there are uh, uh, t- twenty three uh cairns the longest one 20, uh is twenty seven feet long and and these are obviously not new because there are trees that would be two or three hundred years old growing right out of the middle of some of them mm-hmm. uh, so they're quite old, and they're down in this in this canyon at first, one might think, well, these were stones piled up to get out of fields, but uh that's immediately uh hypothesis broken down because uh, that's the only place that farming would take place is right where the cairns are so they would be right in the middle of it and that wouldn't make sense they would just throw the rocks on over the hill or something if they want to try to get them out of the way so they're obviously placed there for some reason and then there is a uh, there is a, a, a long structure Uh, serpentine kind of structure, a a wall uh, that's broken in a couple of places by old lumbering roads, but this thing is several hundred feet long, and it comes uh, around the hill, around the canyon, and at one point uh, connects to what I call a float stone, that is the stone already there. Uh, I don't think it was placed there. I think the wall was placed up against the stone uh, on purpose. I don't think the stone could have been moved. It was far too large. But if you stand off to the side of that stone, you realize that it's the head of a serpent, and it's uh, the stone has a split in the front that forms the serpent's mouth. It has indentations on both sides, uh, where the serpent's eyes would be, and this wall connects into that into that serpent. In addition to that, uh, there are other other walls, and one can't figure out what these walls would have been. Well, uh, people, uh, some knowledgeable people tried to estimate how long. Uh, these things might have been there we don't know how deep they go Uh, we know that some of them are several feet high still in existence but uh, goodness uh, they could be covered up several feet down below now when when one stands in that canyon and starts looking around at all that is located there uh, immediately uh, the people I've taken up there says, says, you know, this is a lost city and, uh, there's not been much archeological work done on it at all. There's been no digging whatsoever done on the property. Uh, it's the only archeological work done was a survey was taken several years ago and the, and the site itself was given a archeological number and, uh, and uh, called uh, the catch-all term we use for that period called woodland indian Um, but anyway uh, at this site there are a number of other things that have been found that are on the verge of being spectacular from my opinion Uh, one there is a, a a set of stone steps that have been carved that's sitting out from the wall of the canyon, it may have slid down from the canyon. I don't know, but it's about four or five very large stone steps high, and it's just obviously carved stone steps. But there's nothing around uh, around it to indicate what it might have been connected to or what it might have been used for. In addition to that, there are uh, there are uh, Uh, caves uh, rock houses and in one of those rock houses there is a carved serpentine head Uh, people have referred to it variously as a serpent and as a turtle but it's definitely a serpent head I think Uh, and, and that serpent head is pointing sort of uh, in an easterly direction toward the uh, the 23 cairns that I mentioned earlier, and this is all just in the back of the the Sprat uh, uh, home site. Uh, I have, over the years, over about 20 25 years of working on the site, have explored the area, uh, going around that. Uh, Canyon and out of the canyon and 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 uh, uh, toward uh, toward the northwest and all the way up to what is called Wind Hollow and then back around on the other side in front of the Spratt House which which uh, covers an area my uh, guesstimate would be about a five mile distance and. All around that site, I found evidence of there having been uh, wall structures and cairns and uh, uh, petroglyphs of all sorts. Uh, there's an amazing set of petroglyphs at the at the canyon site, uh, petroglyphs that... Uh, some have suggested look more Mediterranean than, uh, uh, than maybe native, but, uh, nobody's been able to determine, uh, what they say. So, uh, and there, but this whole area, this five miles potentially has a wall that was at one time continuous, uh, and was a was a serpent if that's the case it would have been uh, without question the largest uh, uh serpentine structure uh, that we know of in the world there is a large serpentine structure uh in Scotland uh that is known uh there are some known in Kentucky also that are stone there was one up uh, in the, in the uh, Boyd County area, which is north of Menifee County, uh, that serpent had two heads. Uh, the head was destroyed when uh, Ashland Oil, that owns the property uh, several years ago, put a road through, and I think not realizing uh, that the serpent's head was was that structure at the time, and so the the head was actually destroyed. But there were uh, illustrations and pictures of it, so we do know what it looked like. Uh, But uh, perhaps the largest serpent in the world is is in the state of Kentucky. Uh, On the front side of this property, I decided to explore that one day after having uh, worked around on the... uh, canyon side in the back of the Spratt House, and so I went up the the mountain on the front side of the Spratt House and in one day discovered uh, 73 uh, circular cairns uh, and and discovered that wall that I'm talking about that... uh, Ran for for more than fifteen hundred feet without a break, and and then there were breaks, and then more wall running and con- continuing on. I think the breaks were probably old timbering roads uh, that went went through the wall and and destroyed part of it, but a major part of it is still there. But I have uh, you know uh, at this point, I just think I, I don't really know what it is. Uh, I know that it's it's major. I know that it's it took uh, thousands of hours to create, and it meant a great deal to somebody to put that much effort into uh, creating it. Uh, Lee,
2: are the, since you were just talking about the uh, serpentine wall, are the stones stacked like in the... Ar- Article you have in uh, Ancient American one sixteen where the the stones are stacked diagonally instead of no
4: no they uh, and they're different kinds of stone uh, that's the that's the stoneworks in Mercer County which are fascinating right. also uh, I
2: just those stones there yeah there's
4: a the it's it's the only stoneworks I've seen. Although I, I found a sample in Norway and I found a, a sample in Wales, very very ancient, uh, but uh, primarily cannot find any other place, including Kentucky, where these fences were made, uh, or these stones, stoneworks. I, they may be fences. Sometimes it. Sometimes uh, if you have a fence, you want to keep something in or out. And many of these look like they were just done randomly, as as uh, Barbara pointed out in her her documentary. That many of those uh, walls on in New England, uh, you know, they don't seem to follow a stone fence kind of pattern. But the the amazing thing about the Mercer County fences is that they are all diagonal. And uh, my God, were they well built! Uh, we we tried to uh, get underneath one that had been damaged uh, to get a uh, uh, some kind of carbon sampling, uh, and uh, we did that. Uh, our our uh, sampling didn't turn out too well because of. Uh, for one thing, nuclear tests in New Mexico. Uh, uh, some of that fallout uh, fell out in Kentucky and got under that fence and became part of the uh, carbon test, which
1: is kind right. of interesting. Yes. How how deep how deep do the uh, walls go? Because we found that, that quite often we were only seeing a very small portion of what Originally had been built, and then often, if you dug down, you found that there was three or four feet or or more more of the wall yeah, we
4: found some areas we tested went down as much as six feet under the ground so okay. and and they and some of them go as high as uh, I'm gonna guess ten feet above the ground, so you know that's a pretty sizable wall, but the interesting thing is these diagonal walls. Uh, made of flat stones, but some of them, some of them, massive, like four or five hundred pounds each. Uh, uh, it was almost impossible to a fence that was all, or a, a wall that was already destroyed to to remove any of the other stones to try to get down to the bottom of it. It was just uh, just a real difficult task, way beyond what we expected it to be. Uh, but the uh, diagonal ones was pointed out to us uh, by a a Newfoundland engineer that kind of wall would last longer than than a stacked wall because you would have a runoff of water and not the freezing and breaking that uh, a flatter wall would have. So uh, although we got a uh, a carbon dating reading of the 1950s. We know these were here in pioneer times, uh, and we we can't find out if if they were there, as in New England. Uh, you know, we can't find out either if if they were already there when the pioneers came in, or if the pioneers built them. Certainly, pioneers in Kentucky built a lot of fences, but. Uh, except for the top row of stones on uh, modern-built fences, meaning historical, um, you know, none of the others are diagonal. They're all flat, flat-laid stones, and with a diagonal row of
2: stones on top. Yeah, you know, Leeds. Uh, early on, you mentioned you know, the folklore associated with the medicine wheel and in, in the, the the western yeah well we, uh, US is 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 there have you heard any folk uh, about folklore from the the, the native americans and you know living uh, closer to the the spratt site
4: no i i haven't uh, i've uh, you know unfortunately uh many of the native americans were were run out of that part of the country and and uh, you know we have a wonderful native american population now and there's been a lot of recovery of uh of their their stories i, I would want to point out that, that uh we should not think in terms of their stories as legend, because certainly they don't. Uh, they t- they think in terms of their stories as as uh, you know, just that's their history. That's how they kept their records, and uh, you know we've made up we've made up the legendary part of it, um, and and so. You know, one of the things we're looking at in Kentucky now, we have some uh, people who've made some discoveries of Indian marker trees. And uh, people have a tendency to think, well, those marker trees were done uh, a couple hundred years ago, and they may have been. But, you know, in certain places, uh, marker trees are still being done. And, uh, uh, you know, we're talking with several of the native elders now in relation to uh, some marker trees that, that uh, have been discovered uh, in the last year or so around here. But th- I, I, I have only run across one story Americans that connects to stonework, and it was with the an Nojibwe. And... and uh, I was told that there was a group of people at one time called the Stone Stackers, and that they had, for some reason, uh, been at odds with the tribe and were ostracized from the tribe. And they went west to the ocean and and from there disappeared. Uh, and that was information uh, I was told was contained in one of their surviving songs. Uh, I look at that very closely and and try try my best to put together what know what that's all about but that's the only one that i've heard directly connected to stoneworks um i do know that there was a and there is and was a a uh, a wonderful native native uh, policy uh when you came by uh somebody's burial that uh uh, that had played some important role in your life, and you wanted to honor that person. Uh, you always, every time you went by, you always left a stone on the on the pile that was already there, and so that these stone piles sometimes uh, grew uh, quite large because of the. Honoring the people uh, who were buried in there.
1: Yeah, Lee, that's that's also a Jewish tradition. Um, it is. I'm I'm wondering about the Karens, though. Have you have you come to any conclusion as to what they might be? Because I've seen them in the middle of huge fields. I've seen them standing alone. I've, you know, they are. They make no sense to me, and, you know, I don't want to go digging up to see if there are bones beneath them, but they appear, they're appear they stacked so intricately well that, that there had to be a purpose. And it's almost like, you know how sometimes they put the cones up for, for um, cars to drive around and stuff like that? You know, it, it almost looks like it's that kind of an obstacle course of some sort.
4: Well, there has been some suggestion uh, uh, by one of our uh, uh, one of our m- uh, members, uh, Sue Cotter, who suggested that in looking at the Mercer County stoneworks, that she felt they were probably uh, guides are uh, to sort of drive buffalo through, and that they would, you know. Have a way of slowing them down and make them go in certain directions, and so it was easier to get the buffalo if the, you know, if you put something in their in their path where they had to go around, and then they you could make them go mm-hmm. where you wanted them to go. So, well, uh, that, that Sue has a really sense.
3: good reason for making that observation too. Sue and Larry own a piece of property that is right next to what is called the Buffalo Trace in Indiana, and part of that buffalo trace, which is 91 miles long and carried as many as 4 million buffalo every year, has a stone wall that leads right to their driveway for their cabin. And that stone wall kept the buffalo out of the field right there when there were still buffalo traveling it. And in places, it's only three feet tall. So the it's important to note that the buffalo she's talking about were the eastern woods buffalo, which were a lot smaller than today's Plains Bison. Right. And easy, easier to guide into the path you want. So she's got
4: a good point there. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah, to answer explain your question...
1: Yeah, I wouldn't explain the ones here in New England, though. I mean, maybe they were yeah. anything were oh, here.
3: There were bison in New England.
1: Oh, okay. That's interesting. It, it I never thought
4: It certainly won't uh, explain from my perspective the, the millions of miles of them. But anyway, <laughs> you're, talk, you're talking of the cairns. I, uh, uh, you know, I have a feeling that the cairns uh, are individual burials. um Okay. uh, And I just, I've I've never dug, and I won't dig in one of them, but but, uh, some of them have been dug in in other places, and there have been, uh, in some of them, not all of them have been dug in, there have been skeletons found.
1: That makes, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes
4: sense to me. Yeah, unfortunately disturbed, but but that doesn't uh, you know that doesn't cover the the walls. Uh, no. When I see those cairns, you know, I think the seventy-three cairns on the that I uh, and my late wife Joy discovered on the other side of the the mountain, I think those are definitely burials. Uh, although we had a we had a uh, and this I need to need to point out too uh, we had a survey done uh I was I was trying to get uh um, the heritage council of Kentucky to to submit the opposite side of, of the spratt site uh From the canyon side, which is on the National Historical Record, I was trying to get the other side um, submitted for that too, and uh, was told, "Well, the first thing we'll need to do is uh, is get a uh, uh, get a funding to have a survey done of it." And and I thought, "Well, you know, I know a lot of surveyors, and uh, they're like I am; they're ready to go." So. You know, let's go out and do it and then think about it. And so I managed to get hold of uh, the best surveyors around. It was a group in Kentucky that had resurveyed the Kentucky-Tennessee state line and reestablished everything except, I think, three points along the whole southern border and and uh, anyway they went up there and they when I told them what it was like they they just didn't believe me and like anybody else you tell them what's up there and then until they get there you you can't imagine but well, when they got there they got very excited and they did the best survey probably that's ever been done in the state of Kentucky with with uh, their GPS equipment everything they were not just surveying Walls. They were surveying individual stones, and and uh, I thought only Jim Shirts did that kind of work. But anyway, uh, it turned out that many of these stoneworks were not just random walls, but turned out to be literally effigies. Uh, massive effigies that were far too large for you to see and understand just standing beside them and uh, uh, a computer printout we had Uh, there is an effigy of a man it's a man running obviously is what it is and uh, and above his head is what I've been calling a tuning fork uh and only only recently do I think I discovered what that tuning fork is, uh, and is I was looking at looking at a topo map, and uh, uh, there is is a, a creek coming into uh, the area called Clifton Creek. And it has a branch off of it called Long Branch. And when you look at the topo map, it's identical with my tuning fork. And so I think that's probably what it's saying. Now, I don't know if a man's running to or from uh, Clifton Creek and, and Long Branch, but uh, I, th- I think there is a connection. But there were there were ducks and geese and, and turtles Uh, effigies. Uh, So it was just amazing. And uh, another thing that the surveyors discovered on the opposite side of the the hill was there was a large stone cairn, which was a 20-foot diameter, 20-foot high stack of stones. And right beside it was a 20-foot deep, 20-foot wide hole now, I haven't figured that one out yet either. But it's a fascinating thing to think about.
2: So, 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 so the you have like the same dimensions on top of the Earth as going into the Earth. Yes. Okay, That's a little bit of a you know, paradox, but you know, it's also like one of those yin and yang type symbols. As above, so below. Right, right, Rick. Yeah. Well, yeah.
4: I, and I I thought of that. I uh, as above, as below. Uh, and I guess it's connected to that. But it, you know, I just can't uh, figure the whole thing out yet. Uh, don't expect to. But let me just mention that uh, this uh, Rick will be talking about it in the second hour. The conference coming up is one of the great ones. Judy Johnson has been in charge of running it for many years, and this is the 14th annual one coming up. and And I've been involved with them back over the years. It's the it's one of the most uh, amazing conferences that I get uh, to attend, uh, uh, and it's it's based on uh, the late Fred Reed Holmes. proclamation that you don't you don't jump on you don't jump on the speaker because of what he's saying you let him say what he wants to say and you listen to it and if you disagree with it okay then you uh, you know you give your side fred said put everything out on the table and what's not supposed to be there will eventually roll off and and so this is a wide open conference it's uh, uh, you will hear all sorts of uh, both scholarly and, uh, as some suggest, off the deep end kinds of presentations. Uh, but it's amazing what it all turns out after you've you've had one. I always come away from that conference uh, uh, very excited for a long time uh, on uh, questions that have been. Answered and more questions that have been raised, uh, and tickled to death to see Rick back there this year.
0: Yeah,
3: it's been a while, but I, I I think the first one I attended was what 2007 or so. So I haven't been there all 14 years. That have been there a while.
4: Yeah, well, they've accused me of being there all 14 years, but that's not true. I've been there 13.
2: Lee, what... I missed the first one. <laughs> uh, Lee, uh, what is your ancient Kentucky Historical Association group? You're the president of that. What do you uh, do as part of a group?
4: Well, according to many of the local historians, stir up trouble, <laughs> but,
3: and do it very very well I might add.
4: <laughs> the the Ancient Kentucky Historical Association was was founded uh 30 years ago by uh the late Jim Michael and uh, a couple of other people and and their their primary purpose at the time was to research the prismatic. uh information uh, this area in particular is just loaded with especially in the 19th century everybody in the area knew of Prince Matic and knew that he was here and et cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's what it started out and uh, it, uh, it developed from there uh, into uh, something quite larger and uh, uh, we just totally changed the the dateline of, of the prince matic uh 90% of everything you'll see on prince matic says that he came here in 1170 and was the the son of uh king owen in wales who died and uh, his children were fighting over the throne which did take place but uh, but uh, there's no historical Prince Matic connected to King Owen, and so he was then sort of created as a, a, a bastard child. Everything was correct on on Prince Matic. He did come here, but he did not come here in the 12th century. He came here in the 6th century, and uh, uh, Jim Michael started working with uh, uh, two uh, historians in Wales um uh, uh, Alan Wilson and Baron Blackett, and and Jim asked asked. Uh, first of all, Jim was trying to get uh, Alan to uh, to uh, uh, research and translate some of the inscriptions we were finding in in the state of Kentucky, inscriptions that ought not to be here, and. Uh, uh, Jim sent inscriptions to to Alan and then in a few days it would come back translated and so uh but Jim asked Alan to help him locate Matic and uh and and uh Alan wasn't interested in researching that. He was going back the other direction and but it turned out that uh, when Alan did pick up the research he found Prince Matic was hard not to find in the sixth century, and impossible to find in the twelfth century historically. So, so, uh, and we found we found how that uh, how that became a problem because uh, uh, a misunderstanding between Richard Hackluth, the historian, and and uh, and Dr. Powell, another writer. Uh, they they. Got their information from a monk named Karotic and uh, we discovered that Karotic died in 1156, and and would not be passing along the information about 1170 unless he had a good ghostwriter. But that was how the that was how the organization began, and uh, our research has led us into some uh, crazy, crazy areas. Some of which I bet Rick will talk about in the second hour.
3: Well, yeah, I might. Who knows? But the other thing, that, if I might jump in on the AKHA stuff, um, they concentrate on Kentucky sites and Kentucky um, prehistoric stuff. But they also look around at what was going on outside of Kentucky that affected what is in Kentucky. And that Absolute. is the difference between... That is the difference between quote unquote amateur organizations like AKHA and a k h a and the professional organizations who are funded by an individual state and never leave their state,
4: yeah, Just well, say. you know one of the things we have to realize uh any place in the world does not take place with nothing else in the world going on and and when other things in the world happen they affect areas ordinarily not thought to be connected at all. And and that's the reason that our research uh, encompasses more than just Kentucky. Kentucky's our focus, absolutely, and rightly so. But uh, we we realize that uh, Ganun Padang in Indonesia uh, played some role in Kentucky at one time or another, and uh, we realized that Gobekli Tepe in Turkey uh, affected what was happening in Kentucky, and so that's the reason we we spread it out. And then uh, if you don't see the broader picture, you
2: can't see the smaller picture. Well, that uh, explains your interest in the Roman coins found along the Ohio River. Why, why are Romans coming to the Ohio Valley?
4: Well, you have to think in terms of, of, uh, of Romans being anybody in the Roman Empire. And at one time, that was most of Europe. And, uh, uh, you know, people were using Roman coins that uh, were nowhere near Rome. And, and uh, so, uh, but we, we were finding... Uh, uh... amazing uh... stories about incredible numbers of roman coins being found in the louisville area and and just anecdotally i was able to uh, identify perhaps up to two hundred coins that were found and and uh... many of these coins i've, I've filmed and recorded uh, and they all seem to fall into the particular time period, which plays havoc with the idea that there were coins being lost by collectors. It also plays havoc to, with the theory because uh, uh, the collectors uh, evidently just uh, collected uh, and lost them along riverways, uh, waterways, the, the older highways. <laughs> and they
3: the only interest. Particular
4: century of roman coin. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And th- there was a suggestion that uh, <clears throat> that there were more roman coins found after in the in the uh after world war 2 because the soldiers were bringing them back and losing them. Well, that's idiotic. Uh they were finding more after world war 2 because of a little invention that had been done a little bit earlier to uh, to discover landmines and was later used uh, called a metal detector to find coins well a million guys out with metal detectors are going to find more coins than all the archaeologists with a little shovel digging for the rest of their lives.
3: Well, yeah. Uh, you look at the large hoards of coins that are found, say, in England, the, and in, in mm-hmm. particular the Roman hoard coins, fifty thousand in a shot. Right. Uh, but, but there, even there, the hoard of fifty thousand coins spanned the the dates of the coins spanned a period of almost
4: three centuries. Right. So right. Well, they were being used used in in. Uh, in England, certainly a, a wide, widespread of time. Even though my feeling was they weren't part of the Roman Empire, they were using the coinage.
3: Well, yeah, and, certainly, and and here we find coins not only from the Roman Empire, but also from the Byzantine Empire and Carthaginia and uh, a few other places. Uh, just a couple of Phoenician coins have turned up. But they're ignored because, well, they've got to be fake.
2: Okay. Uh, Lee, a couple of years ago when you, you were at AAPS, um, you presented your uh, Seafaring Strangers uh, documentary. Are you going to be doing that, something like that, this year or... No, I won't also, be. Pre- uh, I won't
4: be presenting a documentary. My my uh, talk at the uh, conference this year on the uh, the Kentucky Spratt site as a Kentucky's lost city will be a PowerPoint presentation. Oh. Uh, and over the years, uh, I have presented documentaries. Uh, you know, they they're primarily uh, you know the result of a great deal of research that I do and then uh put the documentary together. And I uh I probably have to live another 50 years in order to get it all done. Okay. Well,
2: uh, I vote yes. So- I vote yes. <laughs> yes. I another 50 years. Well it s- s- sounds like it's uh going to be a good uh conference.
0: Yeah, it'll it'll
4: be it'll be marvelous. We're taking uh we're taking a good group here from the uh, Kentucky area. We'll have about uh thirteen or fourteen people going up uh in uh, in one vehicle and that's uh that should be a lot of fun.
3: I don't Road think trip. there will be blood.
4: You don't think what?
3: I don't think there will be blood.
4: No, there won't be any blood. <laughs> No, yeah,
3: you know, I think really we'll have a, good, a great time. Uh, I, I I threatened to bring a guitar, but you know that that's subject to change.
4: Well, that's so, a good that's a good threat, uh, and uh,
2: we're uh, we're working to uh, make sure there's room for it. Okay, uh, uh, Lee, are you going to bring your guitar in case you have to be a wedding singer again? No, I'm uh, I won't bring my guitar.
4: I I can't because uh, I don't own a guitar anymore. Uh, I had a uh, a wonderful guitar used over the year a nineteen uh, thirty one Gibson, and uh, I had uh, promised it in my will to my nephew. But I turned out I'm living too long, and I, I instead of making him wait until I pass along, I thought I ought to just pass the guitar along to him. Uh, wonderful nephew I've got, uh, and. I did that, and so uh, uh, Joe Kendall's now the owner of the 1931 Gibson. So I don't own a guitar now. I have to play Jill's.
2: Okay. Well, you're uh, welcome
3: to use mine at any time.
2: Thank you. <laughs> okay, uh, so, uh, Lee, which one did you play at uh, Rick and Brenda's wedding?
4: I played uh, Rick's guitar. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that uh, that messed me up good because I had managed to stay hid from all that folk music for for quite a while. And and Rick and Brenda, bless their hearts, I said, would you play at our wedding? And uh, loved both of them and uh, could not say no. And and unfortunately, they took pictures and spread them around, and then people start saying, you mean you play a guitar, <laughs> and then there you go. <laughs> Life's good.
1: Hidden talents.
3: Yeah, he, he has many talents, and playing guitar is one of them, but singing is another. He does some amazing folk music. We've been to a couple wow. of folk festivals together, in fact. I hope to do more of that
0: with Woody.
4: Yeah, I hope hope so, especially that wonderful thing we did at White Oaks, Indiana on, uh, you know, the Make-A-Wish-For-Children Foundation. And we raised a lot of money for them at that concert, and an awful lot of uh, musicians uh, want to get back to that and do it again, and uh, I'm all for that.
1: Lee, well, I have a question. <clears throat> with, with the um, getting back to the Pratt property, um, I have found that that being around these stone structures and these stone walls and the you know just there is a feeling about them that is very magical. Has it inspired any poetry for you at all?
4: Well, everything that I touch inspires me for poetry i'm a I'm pretty reckless with my poetry, so so I'd have to say yes on that. <laughs> but, but uh, one of the things I will that I will say uh that that there is something about these ancient sites I think joy would kill me if I said this while she were alive but I think I'll go ahead and say it uh joy had the ability to to recognize an odor that was at these ancient sites that was around no other site. And we were up in Newfoundland and out in the middle of the woods and and Joy reached over and touched my arm and said we're standing in the middle of something important and we actually started looking around and found stoneworks and all sorts of things and uh, but but I've had uh, I've had the hair raise up on my arms uh, in some of these places including the Spratt site uh, and uh, I don't know what to say about that except that maybe the ancients uh, maybe the ancients want us to know when they're Spirits are somehow still around trying to tell us to pay attention.
1: Yeah, I would have to agree with you on that because I know that um, with some of the structures and some of the walls that we went to, it was almost as though time was standing still. It was almost as though there was something very special there that, that if you listened carefully enough, you'd be able to catch it. And, and the, I, for want of a better word, I'm going to call it magic because some of the sites do have that kind of an energy about them that almost reminds me of, of the energy inside of a, a crop circle or the energy that is around a place that has had ceremony of some sort performed in it for generations. There is, there is definitely a magic about some of these sites. Oh,
2: so, so, so it's only a of residue.
4: Well, yeah, yeah it, it's that's 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 a good concept, I think. I, I will just mention one thing. In 1997, I uh, w- went to Easter Island to do some filming, and uh, and after I was there about a week or so, and and told Joy I said I've got to come back because I didn't have a chance to to go among the Moai and listen to what they wanted to say. And so at the millennium break, we went back to Easter Island, and uh, I literally got to live with the Moai day and night and, and felt uh, felt voices even though I couldn't understand everything I was hearing, but felt voices enough, uh, to be able to do a documentary on Easter Island.
2: Uh, well, been, I, I, that must've been a great trip.
4: Well, I never had a bad trip in my life, Mark. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Easter Island, Easter Island is an incredible trip. Uh, incredible two trips. But the, the last one at the millennium break, uh, especially when Y2K was supposed to happen, and I did film the last airplane leaving Easter Island. I was going to have it on record. If all the planes went down, I'd at least have the last one leaving <laughs> Easter Island. Uh, I, I, I,
1: I have a, <clears throat> I had a friend who had, her father was on one of the ship's that was one of the early contacts, and he brought he had brought home one of the he, a small head, and yeah. it, they they have they have an amazing energy on them, and the head that she had it it was I, don't, I guess it was about maybe two and a half three feet high. It had an onk on the back of it. Did any of the other? Hmm. Heads have onks on the back of them.
4: They have all sorts of petroglyphs on them. Yes.
1: Wow, it it, it was fascinating mm-hmm. to touch something like that.
4: I I'm don't not specifically going to remember one with a an nunk, but but uh, I won't, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised.
1: I, that, that's something that isn't really made public too much that there there were symbols on the backs of them they they usually just go to the eyes and the you know where they're facing and all of that stuff but i did often wonder if if the other if there were other markings on them that weren't being publicized
4: No, yeah, they don't they don't publicize that there's uh one that uh hired all, uh dug out uh that had a uh, three masted ship on it on the front of the Moai.
1: Oh, wow.
4: And well, You
3: know, the Spanish raided Easter Island for slaves and slave labor for, what, 230 years, something like that?
4: Well, they, they cleared them all out in that one failed swoop, uh, uh, taking them to the guana mines in South America. And there were. The 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 uh, bishop of Tahiti raised Cain, and they let him come back. But of the thousand people they took off of Easter Island, only a hundred returned. All the rest of them died, and the hundred they brought back had smallpox, and they wiped out the rest of the people. It was fewer than fewer than thirty uh, Rapa Nui people survived, uh, original Rapa Nui people, and, and their, you know, their stories, their, uh, their ability to read the Rongo Rongo boards, they, they took the, they took the, uh, the elders, everything into the slaves, and they, they destroyed a whole people and, uh, a whole information, but. But you know, we had uh, we had uh, thousands of history books in the Americas that were destroyed, uh, and we have a we have a few of those those belts left that that have the information on it. But we burned tons of those. We'd have had a whole history of the people if we'd. Have, been good
1: guys. <laughs> I think I yeah. think really when you look at it all that we were the barbarians and they were the cultured society.
4: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But,
3: well, what do well you they, say? Had, they had a writing system. When I say they, it's Native Americans. Pick a tribe, any tribe. They at least had a connection to someone who had a writing system. And they still do. They just didn't want it to talk about
4: Yeah, that's absolutely the case. Yeah, we have uh, our uh, uh, our Native American, uh, uh, one of our Native American advisors in in the ancient Kentucky, uh, Lauren Jeffries, you know, has done some marvelous work on what I think is a uh, is a uh, a very unique piece of history that, uh, you know, anything new that turns up now is suggested to be a hoax or a fraud, but uh, I think he's working with some authentic stuff. You know what I'm talking about, Rick, probably.
3: Oh, I I think I do. Um, And there are many examples on both continents. But the, yes. the idea that that writing was something that Native Americans could not do because they were not cognitively capable, that's the lie that all the governments tried to tell.
4: Yeah, um, well, it's, it's uh, crazy.
3: Yeah, but it is crazy. It, it,
4: that's like saying that the uh, Cherokee alphabet was invented overnight.
3: Well, yeah, and they still
4: stick to that. Line. Yeah. <laughs> As the guy said, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it.
3: <laughs> well, you know, the, the Cherokee did invent the blues, but that's a whole different
4: story. So,
3: my, my thanks to that, by the
4: way. Well, Rick, yeah. I've been taking up some of your hour, buddy, and I want to... Uh, uh, I want to close out here and and uh, thank Barbara and thank uh, Mark and and thank you, Rick, for
1: being part of this tonight. And then
4: I want to get loose and let you talk up a storm. Okay. I have had <laughs> I've had
3: zero Mountain Dew today. <laughs>
2: well, well yeah, uh Lee, if uh it's uh you know get, get getting late for you uh you know we really appreciate the hour and fifteen minutes or so you spent with us and you know, we'll have to do it again you know we'll get the archive to you tomorrow uh, it, it was very insightful and we wanna you know wish you the best of luck thank uh, you so much
4: it, and then, you know uh uh I'm happy anytime, uh, Mark and Barbara, to come back and 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 talk again. If there's something sure. you know we we missed that you want to cover, uh, be delighted. Oh, we'll hold
1: you this. to that.
4: Oh, you don't have to hold me. I'm, <laughs> I'll lean <laughs> up against you on that. Yeah, <laughs> no, oh, you know, you know,
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. We need to talk about uh, you know your cr- creative inspirations and being a. Poet Laureates and all the writing awards that you know, have come your way. So you know, that's something that hopefully can inspire the listeners to get motivated to write their uh, stories and poems. Well, it's been
4: a great trip, a great, uh, great ride, and
2: uh, I'm still pumping. So, <laughs> okay, right. we could save that for next time. So, yeah, uh, you know, we want to wish you uh, good luck on your uh, trip to Michigan next month, and it's um, October fifth, sixth, and seventh at the. Oh, uh, we is the Island Resort and Convention Center in Harris, Michigan. Got the see see, see uh, like fifteen great speakers talk about uh, prehistoric America. So we will be there.
4: Well, listen. I'll say good night to everybody, and again, thank you so much for having me. And. Uh, Uh, to all those people that I sent out links to, and you've been listening, thanks for listening. And uh, for those of you who missed it, you're going to have to hear it anyway because they're going to be sending me a a link. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so if you didn't hear it, uh, you will in the future.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Lee, and uh, we'll uh, be in touch. Okay. Good night, everybody. All
3: right. Good night. Good night. Right. See you soon. So, Mark mm-hmm. Eddy, where do you want to go from here? your show. Call a shot. <laughs> uh,
1: let's
2: see. Um, okay. Um, we could start off with... Um, is it really true that you're a uh, possum rescuer, Sports Illustrated model, and my husband-in-law? I I I, I don't know. I I got this email w- with stuff like that. Uh, do, do, Barbara, do you do you know who 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 could have sent that to me?
1: I have no idea.
2: Uh, I, I, uh, during the uh, maybe commercial break, we can. Uh, trace that uh, Trace that message,
3: the but the the possum rescuer, yes, I did that just really well. Uh
2: um, okay.
3: And the, the thing that uh, Lee mentioned about the White Oak Music Festival, I, I rescued a black snake from inside a stove at one of the cabins there. I got And reminded me of an old song about a show that came Anyway um the rest <laughs> of it I don't know sure
0: I,
2: Okay I I I I don't I don't know who could have been uh, been sending us uh, messages like that but uh you know we'll we'll check into that Hope, hopefully she's not sitting next to you in the garage but we'll move on to uh, some other topics then um you know Rip, when you know, you've been you know um, putting together a lot of articles you know, covering all the engineering work done from the archaic people to the Mississippians in the uh ohio valley uh Kentucky, Tennessee. Uh, areas uh, uh, really informative uh, dis- uh, discussions, and you, know, you have all kinds of uh, you know, like the Google Earth and you know the maps that you know cl- clearly document where all these activities uh, were happening around uh, beds <coughs> in the rivers, and uh, you know where do you get ideas for you know, these kind of articles oh wow
3: um inspiration means about inspiration um sometimes like barbara i get that feeling that i'm someplace important but most of the time i'm sitting in front of the computer looking at a map she mentioned google mm-hmm. Lucky enough, fortunate enough, profoundly fortunate to be associated with a guy by the name of Calvin Hamilton, who has compiled a really good library of LiDAR maps. Um, unfortunately, he got hacked, but he have the same easy access. But the LiDAR has been a tool I've used extensively in this series of articles I've read for And now I'm kind of moving into other uh, technological marvels, I guess, would be one of the ways of putting it. A magnetometry setup. I've become at least peripherally involved with an organization that uses magnetometry to look for signs of ancient occupation. Um, So it's it's an additional important tool, I guess, in looking for these things. But... um, the uh, the main source, the most important source of information for me to go looking for stuff, is other people. They give me a, an idea of, for instance, I'll give you a for instance. We we mentioned uh, Larry and Sue Cutter mm-hmm. uh, earlier about her idea of the rock walls. Well, one of their friends. Mentioned to them that there was also a fortress near them. Well, you know, That's the main thing I write about is the fortresses, and where they were mm-hmm. and why they were where they are or were. So we, the day I was over there, it was right after uh, having presented to the AKHA and I was also going to prevent, present to Clark Grant Historical Association that evening. Anyway, that day we went out looking for this site because their friend had to work that day so we were going to try to go on directions he had sent with Sue so he said you know take a ride here and then look to your right and well looking to my right I found a big bend in the Blue River and it was along a road called Fort Hill Road and where we were at that exact moment was right in front of a church called Fort Hill Church and you know the the place name thing just never lies it almost never gives you a false positive so it's a pretty good bet that there was a fortress there I'd got to do some actual boots on the ground legwork to determine it for sure but uh, the bin in the river all the map, the topography everything is right So I expect J.D.'s correct that's where it was so I've had a number of sites like that, that have been brought to me by readers or listeners, uh, to go investigate based on the information I've given out. It's going to be close to a, a, a navigable waterway. It's going to be along a geographic line between basically Louisville, Kentucky and Miram, Indiana in this case. Um, so that's on the Ohio River, and the latter one's on the Wabash River. Um, another guy had gotten a hold of me about a mound that he would found, or a site that he had found in Greene County, Indiana, and it was on a different line that also intersected at Merriman, Indiana. So my, my listeners and readers have helped me tremendously because they're looking. They're watching. They're they're listening and learning, and they're associating these things. So I'm getting some good stuff here. I also get some bad stuff. Mostly, I'm getting some good stuff. Does that answer your question?
2: Oh yeah, and uh, you know, where they bring up the importance of place names, and they you, know, you look at it on Google Earth that they're I can see why it has, you know, this, this certain name. It's it, it's all relevant. It's, all, you know, there's a reason why, you know, there's a modern name based on probably some kind of uh, hi- historical event that happens in the early 18th century or something like that. It, you're making good points. I, I understand Yeah, in uh, that
3: case, it probably described a place that was left over, you know, the remnants ruins of a a fortress. mm -hmm. And even with the fortress gone, the place name survived. Like I was driving from here, from home, to uh, basically northwestern Illinois, over to Nauvoo, Illinois to help Wayne May do some archaeological survey with a site he has over there. And I passed through a place called Signal Hill, Illinois. Um, I'm sorry, through Tower Hill, Illinois. And I'm I'm on the phone, cell phone, in the truck, calling Brenda and asking her to look this up on Google for me while I'm driving. She finds the history, and yeah, it's because Native Americans allegedly used this place as a signal point on the plains, the Great Plains. You don't think of Illinois being part of the Great Plains, but it was, still is.
0: Um,
3: and they had a signal tower there in early historic period. So those, you know, those place names don't lie. Use use that information to look for more sites, and then let me know what you find. And that is part of the whole theme of this upcoming AAPS is the – this year's theme is the Earth Speaks. Hey, I'm listening.
2: Okay, and uh, Judy – I did did want to just make a a quick plug for the website, uh, aapscopper.org is the website to go and uh, check it out and you see the list of uh, excellent speakers that Judy has assembled for this year's conference.
1: Well, I think also yeah, I you got to get a plug in here for what is probably one of my favorite books of all time, and that's Rick's Graves of the Golden Bear. And,
3: oh, that's high praise.
1: Oh, that that book, that's I have a good given one. to so many people. It is it is definitely a must read for anybody who has any any wish for knowing about the history of this country. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I have misquoted it, but it's it's a great book. <laughs>
3: Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate that. Um,
1: well, every time every time, time I've had you on the show, I've read it again, and I always find something new.
3: Well, uh, this year at APS, I'm going to be presenting uh, a, a slightly different version of the presentation I call the Seer and the Oracle, both uh, let's let's say legendary characters in ancient history seers and oracles and they had these magical abilities of course to either see what the gods were sending them or to speak to the gods for us mortals uh, sometimes the same person would do both but it seems unlikely to me however there may have been a little bit of Arthur C. Clarke involved in that because any Sufficiently advanced technology will appear as magic to the uninitiated. Yep. And that's what I think was happening throughout early Roman history, throughout early Greek history, throughout early American prehistory, going back to at least the Olmecs, maybe further. And I think I can prove it. So that's what I'm talking about this year. And it's an opening speech for the entire uh, conference. So it's, you know, the earth speaks, I'm listening.
1: I got a question. I know in some conferences, with some conferences, um, you're able to get CDs of the different presentations. Is that something that happens with this particular conference?
3: I am not certain whether they'll get that to happen this time or not. We've had efforts, and I even tried to do it myself once and still got it ended up being a mess. Um, I wish I had a good answer for you on that one, Barbara, but I do not.
1: Because, you know, there, there are some people that can't afford to get to these conferences, and yet they, they would really um, be, be hungry for the information that is being shared. And it's, it would be such a, a pity to, to not have that particular Actually, if you even want to talk to the conference people, it's a great way to get extra money for, you know, burning CDs for the presentations.
0: Yep.
3: Yep, I'm open to it. I just don't know whether it will happen this time. So Uh, Maybe we can find out. Maybe Judy's listening. I'm not sure.
1: Or maybe we we could... (laughs) Maybe we could get you after the conference, if that isn't a possibility. Maybe we could get you to come on the show and give the presentation, obviously just verbally, but give the talk on the radio show.
3: Back when I was doing Blog Talk Radio myself, I devised a system of describing my presentation and having the slideshow available on a different website that people could follow along.
1: Oh, wow. Maybe
3: we can set up something like that. We'll
1: talk.
2: Okay, we'll talk. Rick, maybe I'll just resurrect the Ooppa Cafe.
3: Oh, maybe I should. Maybe I will, but it won't be really soon. It won't be next much.
2: Okay. Well, so, yeah, there are uh, going to be other uh, really good speakers like Rich Motes there. I, uh, Lon Krieger is scheduled. Uh, maybe next week he might be able to stop in for a little bit uh, after the Shakespeare people uh, I am waiting to have, have a discussion with them but yeah you know, he he does have some uh, neat information about you know the Michigan uh, ancient Michigan gardens and you know were they growing uh, you know sizable uh, crops to feed the copper miners it, it it's an interesting theory, um, but he, you know, he he's going to be there. Do you, do you know what uh, Rich is going to be speaking about?
3: I I hate to say I thought I did, but now I'm not certain. It, uh, uh, he,
2: he, he, he he was involved in that um, uh, uh, survey of Perry County with the. Um, um,
3: magnetometer g- yes.
2: Y- yeah, the uh, you know, ground penetrating radar is. Yes. I, I don't know if that's going to be his topic or not, but I, I that, that I'm
3: not certain either. Um, but the yeah, they they have a an actual organization uh, put together. I don't know where it stands either from a legal standpoint or from a funding standpoint. Uh, And I'll leave that to Rich because he's the guy. But what they're doing, looking for evidence of occupancy to Mm -hmm. find two things. and, And these are very important things. They're looking to find what the population was and how the population moved. So, yes, they had permanent towns, but yes, they still moved around. People still moved around, just like today. i got some friends who are getting ready to move now. They moved. People move. People get bored with where they are, and they move on. How much of that happened 2,000 years ago, we don't know yet. But we're working on a way to find out. Rich is working on a way to find out. Um, another guy that you haven't mentioned, whose work is extremely important for... Um, diffusion theory and that is Carl Johansson, and his work has documented the last time I counted uh, something over 400 different species of plants and animals that have arrived someplace in the world from here or to here and they couldn't have done it naturally they had to have done it by being transplanted or transported by humans and in several cases that could not have happened with a beringia entry. So his work is amazing, amazingly important. I might add. Um, of course, Wayne May is going to be there, and um, Jim Schurz um, uh,
2: Jay, Jay Wakefield. Uh, I'm sure is probably me talking about some uh, transatlantic crossings.
3: Uh, yeah, related to copper trade, I believe. Jay's Jay's done some amazingly important work in the area. Right this conference has come up over the years; it's come up with some amazing, truly fascinating theories, with some pretty good logic backing them up. But things that would just knock your socks off as it turned out to be, you know, proven. Just haven't been able to prove some of them. Jay's on the verge of some proof, so. There we go. Okay. Uh,
2: anyway. Uh, and do, do, do you think um, with this group of lecturers that the Powell Doctrine will be corrected?
3: Within this group, yes outside it's hard to say but we're we're going to continue working at that for those listeners who don't know the Powell doctrine is that if you find anything that shows writing some form of sophistication well beyond what Powell described as barbarians and he used that term for all Native Americans um if you find those things that prove him wrong you must destroy them that's a Powell doctor I'd paraphrase, but that's what it amounted to it was just chicken scratches it didn't really mean anything <clears throat> and then before the end of his life in 1902 he started making exceptions for well, the Maya might have known how to write oh the Aztec yeah they had a couple little books they had enough to warm the basilica for what 100 years yeah that's the about
2: yeah Rick where do you think um, yeah, the the research that is coming out now is taking the alternative historians you know movement where, where are we going with? you breaking away from the mainstream dogma.
3: Okay, the dogma for the last,
2: uh, let's go
3: with about 78 years, has declared that there was nobody here before Clovis. We've heard this. Mm -hmm. That dogma is falling apart so rapidly they can't even sweep it under the rug. The current research is finding much more evidence that people were impressively mobile on the waterways and the oceans and impressively restricted mobility on the land. Because, well, walking just doesn't get you there nearly as fast as sailing does. And that's not just us diffusionists who are pushing this concept. It is now entering mainstream Anthropology and Archaeology. And I think that is a great thing. You have more and more universities who are opening uh, departments to include curricula surrounding underwater archaeology, marine and archaeology together in the same room. Oceanography and archaeology in the same room. These are very important strides in academia. Whether it will take in my lifetime remains to be seen. But the research is going there. A hundred years ago, people were still taking their shovels and their buckboards out and digging into mounds looking for artifacts. That was archaeology. Today, archaeology does not necessarily involve a shovel at all. It might include a test vial and go out and get a little bit of soil and come back and analyze everything that's in a little test vial and find out what was growing there at that point in time, or or what the point in time was in this particular sample. What was growing? Was it being cultivated or was it wild? And Nowadays they're developing better techniques to determine that question. Um, and, And the magnetometry and the ground-penetrating radar, and the LIDAR all play a part. But when you get down to it, if you can't dig a hole, you can't know much. And right now, we can't dig a hole. If if we suspect there's a burial within you know, 30, 40 feet of where we want to dig a hole, we can't dig that hole without permission from you know somebody way up the ladder in state government, or maybe even federal government.
1: Well, won't that kind of destroy evidence? You know, I mean, in in order to preserve whatever is there, um, it it takes a little more than a shovel. Um,
3: Yes, it does. To to truly determine, you have to remove everything. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples of where that is still going on because there are no even speculated burials. That's the important difference. You've got uh, a guy in South Carolina that says he can go back 18,500 years before Columbus. That kind of rules out Clovis. And it coincides with Solutrean in France. And, well, some of these points are pretty close, comparable for sure, to the ones in Europe, Southwestern Europe at that time. You've got sites in Chile that have been Determined by geologists, not archaeologists, to be 200,000
2: years old.
1: Uh-huh. Uh
3: huh. People making tools at that time. Uh, somebody, something making tools at that time didn't find any human remains. Um, you've got places as like we mentioned earlier, Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe and a lot of these sites that are. 10,000, 12,000 years old you've got a site in Crete on the island of Crete where archaeologists found tools made by presumably something hominin and those tools are 120,000 years old, wait a minute, Crete is an island that you can't walk to now and you couldn't walk to it then that means that 120,000 years ago somebody sailed to Crete whether it was inadvertent is kind of immaterial they were on something that floated. Uh, the Philippines founded 7, 70, not founded, populated seventy-five thousand years ago with modern humans, and as much as seven hundred thousand years ago with proto-hominins. Uh, you get got so many of these examples around the world that, that people sailed, and they made tools in such deep antiquity. That it's embarrassing to read what some of the anthropologists say about that. If you know what I'm getting at.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you know, for a long time they were called what out of pl- out of place artifacts, parts or whatever, yes. ooparts or kind of like oops, how did this happen? But but yeah, the more you're lot finding, lot the more you're finding, the more that. They're going to have to accept the fact that that their time frame is off.
3: It isn't their time frame that's off. It, it, it's their 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 whole thinking process. That they, they keep thinking that we are the most intelligent thing to ever be on Earth, and they're
1: wrong. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
3: they're just wrong.
1: Well, I, I think what uh, really what really Bugs me is that that not only was there the technology to do amazing things but but you know I think in many ways we don't do them justice as far as their consciousness and their evolution of their consciousness goes, because they had a better balance and harmony with nature than we do at this moment in time
3: uh Yeah, I think we can presume that. I can't prove it, but I do presume it. Uh, I also can't prove that they were able, can't yet prove, that they were able to communicate over very long distances without wires. Um, But I'm pretty sure they did. And that's the root of my research. It's a technological capability that is low-tech, but very high in cognitive function. Uh
1: huh.
0: <laughs>
3: very high in cognitive function. Probably higher than almost any anthropologist living today. I might add.
1: Well, but of I can pretty they much did.
3: Prove... <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: Uh, no, I, I, I. Of course they did. I mean, they weren't bogged down with the distractions that we have today. And, and so many of those cultures had a group consciousness that, that gave their history from the beginning of time. So, so the mind at that time, I think, was sharper and more attuned and, and more connected than we are today.
3: Well, at least somebody in their society was. You know, it may yeah. not have been, may not have tended to every individual, uh, and it doesn't today, either, for that matter. I mean, take take a group of 100 people, how many can write an app for a phone? Chances are pretty low that any of them do. Yeah. But, but ask me how many of them can use a phone. And the chances yep. are pretty high that yeah. all of them can use a phone. Um, yeah. Sending the message. Doesn't mean actually conveying the message yourself. Okay. But at, at that point in time, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I don't know that. What I what I can, however, is just dis- I can discern pretty much how it was done, and my analysis of that is it, it could be done a, a half a dozen different ways. I can tell you exactly how the Romans were doing it 2,140 years ago. I mean, keystroke. Hey,
1: we're, we're, we're kind of losing your connection. Are you drifting from the phone?
3: I don't, I didn't think so, but anything better, that that, better? That's better now. Okay. Yeah, my, my headphone slipped down. Sorry. Uh, I know precisely, keystroke for keystroke, how Polybius sent messages by line of sight in 146 BC. Uh, or I should say Scipio Africanus sent the messages, and Polybius wrote down what they did and how they did it. So keystroke for keystroke, I know exactly how they did it. I don't have that same advantage of an accurate, detailed history for, let's say, the Maya of a thousand years ago. But what I can discern is that they had these observatories that didn't necessarily look at the heavens, because those windows weren't high up they were kind of looking at the horizon everywhere
1: um, uh-huh.
3: and every 10, every 10 miles on a 10 by 10 grid the Yucatan is covered with these types of I'll call them public works because I'm pretty sure that's what they were uh, wow. and I believe they were all talking to each other so that's what I think those observatories were used for uh The actual bit by bit, you know, keystroke by keystroke, I don't have that yet. I'm still working on that one. Their numbering system was different. Their writing system wasn't even alphabetic. It was syllabic. Um, Harder for me to discern how to put those things together using the same technology or same basic technology that the Romans were using, um, well, let's say contemporaneously,
4: Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) But which one came up with it first I don't care who came up with it first They
1: were all (laughs) using it Well and didn't you find Signal fires or places Where signal fires could have been lit Or whatever um, Along the uh, uh, terrain Around you
3: Oh yeah absolutely Um And it it, it was the network, and that's all we can, that's the only word that truly describes it. It was a communications network that used line of sight. Oh, wait, so do cell phones. All cell phones work on a line of sight communication system. They just do it with electronics instead of a light. Uh Um, But if you can find a cell tower, then you're probably pretty close to one of the original signal hills. Or signal mounds or signal something. Because the terrain hasn't changed that much in two thousand years.
1: No, that's true. Wow.
3: That's the other thing. (laughs) Yeah, that's the other thing about Larry and Sue's friend, as we were driving out there looking for his site, we went past right past the cell tower and I said, We're close. (laughs) We're close.
2: And I found that on
3: some things have not changed. The, The approach, the the actual detailed technologies can change. The terrain will not. The use of the terrain will not. So, and the end goal will not. The end goal is to communicate. Sometimes for politics, political reasons. Sometimes for mercantile reasons. Sometimes for hey, your Uncle Joe died today, you know, you got to send that message too now and then. So the individuals had to have had access, at least for those things. Whether the state did or not is pretty obvious that, well, the state built infrastructure for it. Well,
1: Uh, Well, there's just so much that we have ignored or not even questioned that it's, it's fabulous that you're going through all of the meticulous work of trying to figure it all out.
3: Well, it's fabulous that people agree with me and send me new ideas. now. So that <laughs> makes it a lot easier for me.
1: I would think.
2: <laughs> yeah, and you know, one of the ideas that really, uh, stuck out with me that we made was, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, like the uh, the land bridge to Alaska, and the Kennewick Man was found along the coast of uh, Washington, and then you get America's Stonehenge on the East Coast, and the submerged Wendover burials in Florida, but... You, know, you really don't think a lot about such an advanced uh prehistoric culture in central the central part of the United States like Kentucky and southern Indiana but that's yeah, that, that's where a lot of you know, the, these artifacts and remains can still be seen or at least, or they're at least uh, well documented
3: they are pretty well documented, um, and that's thanks to the early settlers because uh, you had a few folks Ra uh, uh, Arthur St. Clair. Most people don't know, Arthur St. Clair, the first governor of the Northwest, uh, only governor of Northwest Territory, first governor of Ohio um, Territory. He did not get elected as state governor. He documented a lot of the things, at least around where he built the capital for the Ohio Territory, um, which was on top of the mound initially, by the way. Uh, but right across the river, is, it's now called Hamar's Hill and it was already a signal hill and he knew that the early guys you know the from jefferson on back uh, actually from let's see where would i go with that earliest probably when when the dutch first got into new york that's that those were the first people who knew that the natives were talking about them <laughs> okay think about that when John Smith traveled up to Susquehanna, the natives knew he was coming. When, when Columbus arrived at Santiago, the natives knew he was coming. When he arrived in, in Cuba, the natives knew he was coming and that he was looking for gold. How did, how did he convey that to them? More to the point, one of them knew where to take him to find gold on a different island 150 miles away. (laughs) These questions become hard to answer. It was
2: basically prehistoric cell phones. Yeah, basically.
3: But to make one that, for the native, the kidnapped native, I might add, to have knowledge of a source of gold in a creek on an island 150 miles away is just phenomenal, and yet sailed right to it. According to Columbus's own log. Anyway, four minutes to 12. What do you want to talk
2: about now?
1: um, (laughs) You've got three minutes to go.
2: (laughs) Yeah, um, if people have you know, I want to look more into uh this uh, the AAPS conference they can go to aapscopper.org check out all the information location uh the amazing list of speakers yeah you know, do, do you want to add anything else to that you know, Plug, plug yeah, when book. you book
3: a room, you get a twenty. I think it's a twenty dollars gambling certificate, so you can go play the resort for free, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> it's an amazing list of speakers. It's an amazing event, and I haven't been to the Harris venue. We used to go up into Marquette, so I haven't been to this new venue yet. I'm kind of anxious for that.
1: Okay.
3: Uh, yeah. Let's see what else.
2: Or the, is there uh, t- samples of uh, copper going to be brought to the uh, you know, conference? You know, are other people going to bring artifacts to identify or t- show. Uh,
3: that has certainly happened in the past. Wayne usually has a few small samples of copper and artifacts. Uh, I don't know if. Jim will bring anything down from the tourist trap. That's the name of his rock shop, by the way, tourist trap. Um, but he has uh, an amazing array of geological samples, not just copper that comes from Michigan. So hopefully he'll have some of those. Okay,
2: and, and it's a great are, place. Are you going to have uh, copies of the Grays of the golden bear?
3: I will. I will also have some reprints of uh, Ancient American and a compilation of my first, I think it's five or six articles from Ancient American. I'm still working on the new updated version, which will have 17. It won't be available for this gig, though.
2: Okay, and uh, where can people get a copy of The Graves of the Golden Bear?
3: It is available, from amazon as kindle or print it's also available from barnes and noble as uh, nook or print you have to order it they don't keep them in stock at the stores but you can order it online it's at books million if you order it on um it's also as a diesel and uh, a sony reader and a whole bunch of other places it's available all over the place. You can order a print copy through Ancient American Magazine, although I think they're out of stock right now. Um, so Amazon remains the most reliable method.
1: Yeah, and and we guys are out of time. Time to say good night, Mark. It's been Mark.
3: fun and it's been fast.
1: Th- yeah. Th- 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 thank you,
2: Rick, for being a great guest. Thank you, Barbara, for the great opportunity. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, two Shakespeare scholars and hopefully another AAPS uh, uh, speaker. So we'll see you all next week. Okay, good night, everybody. And don't (laughs) forget the Mothman Festival this weekend.
1: Okie doke. Good night. Good night. Bye.
2: (laughs) See you next week.